and welcome back to Health Law Diagnosed, a Mint's podcast dedicated to health law, health policy, and social issues in the healthcare industry. I'm Bridget Keller, your podcast host, and today we'll be discussing regulatory trends in healthcare transactions. Our team was very busy with a number of transactions throughout 2021, with an additional flurry of activity in the lead up to the year end. So, I asked a few members of our team to gather today for a discussion on the overall trends that we are seeing in healthcare transactions. My first guest is Susan Burson, a member in the health section and chair of the firm's Health Law Communications Antitrust and ML Strategies Division. Susan provides clients industry insight and strategic guidance to help them determine the pros and cons of engaging in a transaction, as well as the best structure for that transaction well before any issues or regulatory requirements are identified. Susan, thank you for joining us. How are you today? I'm great, Bridget. Thanks for having me. Awesome. I'm happy to hear that. So I was hoping that you could share with us your insights on, you know, the macro trends. You know, what are you seeing as the major trends among healthcare investments and transactions in the market as we start off 2022? Happy to do that. I think 2022 is starting off probably a little bit slower than the end of 2020 or 2021, um, but I'm sure we'll see an uptick in transactions, as I'll discuss in a moment. Um, But basically, even during the pandemic, there were many healthcare transactions that were going on, and transaction activity is often dependent on things like inflation and interest rates, which impact um, the access to credit, which is such an important component of any transaction, and also regulatory action. Uh, Are there bills on the Hill, federal or state level, uh, that would initiate changes in how healthcare is delivered or priced or uh, restrictions on certain healthcare activities? All of that becomes part of the consideration when looking at the amount of activity in the healthcare space. Interestingly, the last couple of years have had additional factors that have impacted the number of healthcare transactions and actually increased the amount of activity. At the end of 2020, we saw a real flurry of activities as we were going um, from a Republican administration where there had been very little uh, in the way of new regulations impacting the healthcare sector to a Democratic administration where there were concerns, um, beliefs, whatever the case may be, that there would be much more activity, much more regulation of healthcare activities, much more pointed review by the federal agencies such as the FTC. That resulted in a very busy end of the year in 2020. And then again in 2021, as we made our way through the year, and there were some developments in healthcare regulation, but there was a big focus on legislation that would potentially change the tax law and change the capital gains treatment of certain transactions, we again saw a very, very busy end of 2021. So now here we are in 2022, and I think that we will continue to see investments in healthcare alongside other sectors such as energy and the environment. I think the reason for that is that as long as healthcare makes up such a significant portion of our GDP, uh, there will continue to be interests in how healthcare is delivered, how it's priced, how it's reimbursed, and the like. 
So one, we're seeing a lot of consolidation in areas that are important to healthcare, such as consolidation in staffing of providers, staffing of physicians um, and ancillary healthcare providers, as the pandemic uh, made it apparent that there can easily be a healthcare shortage. We're seeing disruptors developing in the type of health insurance products that are offered on the market, giving the high price of many health insurance products in the commercial sector, as well as disruptors in things such as the delivery of ancillaries, including uh, pharmaceuticals, drugs, and devices, as there continues to be a lot of discussion on the Hill around drug pricing. All of this really does fuel the fire and enthusiasm for healthcare investment. But I think that uh, in the healthcare sector, whenever we look at a transaction for a client, we not only look at the regulatory aspects and the legal aspects of a deal, but we always also delve into what Congress will be doing. Will they be regulating an aspect of whatever transaction we're looking at in a way that would have a negative impact on the investment? Maybe there'll be a positive impact. Are they looking at different types of investors and calling into question investments in certain healthcare sectors? So I think that all types of healthcare transactions will continue really unabated, um, but really subject to, as you called it at the outset, Bridget, these macro trends that are both general in nature, such as inflation and interest rates, and, and much more specific to the healthcare field and the regulation thereof. It's really interesting, Susan, to think about being in such an exciting field, right? And how Congress could just, you know, decide that they're going to regulate a certain area or they're going to establish a new program. And that truly could impact the growth of transactions or, you know, in a particular industry. So I think these, these macro trends are really um, interesting to think about and they're interesting to watch. Oh, I agree completely, Bridget. I view us as truly strategic advisors. Uh, as well as obviously, you know, doing due diligence, negotiating agreements. But it, you really do have to be strategic when you think of a transaction and how it may fare both short term and long term. Absolutely. And Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. I know this was a quick introduction. Um, we have the team uh, who's ready now to speak more about deal specific trends and anecdotes and what we're learning. Um, so thank you so much. And we are going to jump into part two. Great. Thank you, Bridget. All right. So now I've got a team of my colleagues here who are going to speak to us today about specific trends and anecdotes that they've been seeing in the healthcare transaction space. So I'd like to give them each a chance to introduce themselves. And I'll start with Kate Stewart. Thanks, Bridget. I'm Kate Stewart. I'm of counsel in the Boston office of Mints. I divide my practice between regulatory counseling for startups and established healthcare providers and uh, tech services providers in the healthcare industry, and then a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions work um, involving providers, payers, uh, revenue cycle companies, all sorts of vendors to those providers and payers. Perfect. Thanks, Kate. Lauren, how about you? Hello. 
Um, my name is Lauren Moldauer. I'm a senior associate out of the DC office of Mints. Um, I've been with Mints for seven years. I started as a first year here. Uh, my practice focuses primarily on regulatory compliance, specifically with payers, pharmacies, and provider groups. A couple of years at my time with Mints, I moved into the mergers and acquisition space, and that's actually my main point of focus now. Um, part of this, I lead the diligence process, review the transaction documents, and kind of work through the whole acquisition process from the healthcare regulatory side. Thanks, Lauren. Cassie. Hi, I'm Cassie Paylillo. I'm a senior associate in Mince's Boston office. My practice, like Lauren and Kate's, uh, is a mix of healthcare regulatory and mergers and acquisitions. Some areas of particular interest of mine are the corporate practice of medicine, telehealth, HIPAA, and other privacy issues. And most of my work has been on the provider side. Thanks, Cassie. Okay, Xavier, how about you? Um, hi, I'm Xavier Hardy. I'm a uh, mid-level associate in Mince's DC office. Um, I primarily do uh, healthcare transactional work, but I also do some managed care contracting work, particularly involving uh, Medicare Advantage and also uh, regulatory counseling in a variety of areas, including uh, telehealth and genetic testing. Okay, great. Thank you all so much for joining me today on this episode of our podcast. I'm really excited for our listeners because at the end of the year last year, we have been talking about how busy we were and how many different transactions there were. Um, so much was going on and it really sounded like there was a lot that we could learn from it all. So I'm so glad you're all here and we can share some of those anecdotes and trends and things that you've been seeing so Xavier, why don't you kick us off? I know you've been talking a lot lately about the types of healthcare providers that are receiving investments. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, it's interesting. This is definitely before my time, but I know in the early days of private equity, it was primarily like uh, physician practice roll-ups and buying hospitals and SNFs. Um, in the last few years, we've seen a lot more interest in long-term care providers and by that, I mean, like, basically home health and hospice providers, but also home care providers. Um, there's also seen an expansion into different types of physician groups, such as dermatology, ophthalmology, even pediatrics. We've seen uh, many more behavioral health care providers, billing and coding companies, particularly when you have to do with, like, Part C and D work. And definitely you've seen a lot more focus on technology, and that comes basically from like telehealth, but also, as I noted, with the billing and technology companies. Also, to another extent, you have data exchange companies who are dealing with healthcare information. Um, so you've really seen like the expansion in the type of companies that private equity is involved in and what they're interested in. Xavier, that's so interesting that you mentioned some of the investments in spaces that are related to government programs, you know, uh, Medicare Part C, Medicare Advantage, Part D, the prescription drug benefit. You know, I know lately um, some of you have mentioned that the investments have become more Medicaid focused. Have you have you all seen anything uh, there about PE investment in Medicaid providers? So this is Lauren, and I'll take that question initially. Um, we have been seeing a little bit more focus on Medicaid providers. And it's from my perspective, I think it's good for the providers because it's an influx of cash that they really wouldn't otherwise have to have private equity backing. I mean, I think it's twofold. I think partly it is good socially to really invest in Medicaid providers. And also it's somewhere that hasn't seen a lot of PE growth. And so 
as I think as the on the provider side, at least, um, as we move into more managed care and as the managed care companies from the state perspective get a little bit more sophisticated and start you know, increasing the use of risk adjustment and other factors that we see already in MA, um, it could be an area where private equity could bring in their expertise and help some of the providers. Yeah. Lori, you mean expertise in analytics, right? In numbers? Yes. yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. No, absolutely. I mean, the payers who um, are really working in the federal program space, there's, you know, more innovation for this value-based contracting model and sort of risk-adjusted payment systems and all of that. And so I, you're absolutely right. I can see how analytics and data expertise could really help providers be more successful in those programs. And to your point about value-based contracting, I think that's been another main focus that we've really seen in this area. I know we've all worked on some lately where the focus and a lot of the value has been out of these value-based contracts. And it's really interesting. And the good part about the value-based contracting, not only for the investors, does it create you know, potential upside risk, right? Of course, there's some downside risk, but, you know, potential significant increase in upside risk, but it's also really improving the quality of care that patients are getting, you know, across the country from these providers, because the more we go toward value-based, the higher quality care, you know, the members should be receiving. Lauren, recently we talked a lot about um, reps and warranty insurance and the role of insurers in healthcare transactions. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? No problem. Yep. So reps and warranties insurance is a product that usually buyers purchase as part of an acquisition to protect them or to provide an added layer of protection if there is a breach in the reps by the seller. And so they're basically insuring the truth of the reps and they will provide insurance for any losses associated with the breach of a rep. And when I started working on transactions about six or seven years ago, reps warranty insurance was just starting to gain momentum. It's not completely new, but it's really been picked up in the last you know, five or six years. And that at that time, we weren't seeing any coverage for really regulated industries such as healthcare. Like insurers were unwilling to underwrite the risk given the unknown around like what are false claims act penalties going to be and what is the risk. But I think as you know, healthcare is a huge, huge MA market. So these insurers have been starting to bring in experts who understand healthcare and who can underwrite healthcare. And so now the expectation really is for there to be coverage of healthcare reps. The one place that I think, or one area where it's still hard to get coverage is those reps related to billing and coding and losses associated with billing and coding. Lauren, why is that? Is it, You just mentioned the False Claims Act. Is that why it's hard for billing and coding reps? I think there's still a lot of unknown about it. I do think the it's difficult to underwrite. There's just a lot of risk in that area, like you said, because I think the False Claims Act is really a driver in that if there's an overbilling scheme, for example, which is pretty an outright violation, those losses can be significant. But then also with billing and coding, there's just a lot of gray areas. So I think it's difficult to like really predict that risk and predict what the government is going to come after. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you have any recent experience with RWI insurance and coding and billing exclusions? Yeah, so when we come in, we so for the private equity deals that 
we've done recently, I will say the buyer usually always finds at least one insurer that they're looking at who is willing to underwrite the billing and coding. Um, and we've seen insurers take different approaches to that. Um, in a recent deal, so it was a pretty large policy, but only a fraction of the policy amount would cover billing and coding. So say it was like a hundred million, which I know is extremely high, but like they only provided 20 million of coverage for billing and coding. But one thing that they did is they like surgically went through billing and coding audits that our consultant did and that the company had completed previously and excluded like line items. Like we had 20 plus exclusions related to billing and coding. And they were like claims associated with this specific CPT code will be excluded from coverage. And on one end, you see this long laundry list of exclusions and it's you know, you think it's bad, but at the end of the day, it's actually better to have that long list than to have a blanket exclusion of all billing and coding. Hey, Lauren, this is Kate. I wanted to jump in to ask you a question about how you have thought through those billing and coding audits that we do when we represent the buyer, knowing that the deal is insured and that after that billing and coding audit is done, we're going to have to share it with the reps and warranties insurer. And like you said, they may surgically go through it. How does it inform, you know, when you're starting the engagement of that billing and coding vendor, knowing that you are going to have to share the results with the insurer? No, it's a really good question. And I think um, one of the first things I would say is that if you do want billing and coding coverage by reps and warranty insurer, it's vital now to do that billing and coding audit and to bring in a consultant who can who's well-respected to do that. The second thing I'll say is that it's imperative that that does get under privilege. So it's important to make sure that it's the law firm. And so Mintz always usually engages the billing and coding consultant. Great. No, that's super helpful. So you would not rely on the seller's own billing and coding audits that they've done as part of routine course in your experience, a reps and warranties insurer would want to see more and see that there was an actual billing and coding audit done by the buyer. That's what we've seen. I mean, we have seen that they like will look that the reps and warranty insurance insurers definitely look at in house audits. I think there's just an added level of credibility for using a third party firm that they rely on a little bit more and that you can point to, if, especially if there are issues identified in those internal billing and coding. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And are there other ways that the role of RWI or having a, um, a reps and warranty insurer in the background or knowing that that's the goal of the buyer, does that change diligence at all or the approach to diligence or what we're looking for? So I do think that Knowing that there is a reps warranty insurer in the background or who's going to come in and look over all of the diligence that we perform does kind of change our approach both to the diligence and then the purchase documents. I mean, I know from like we've worked with the same insurers a lot on deal after deal and they always ask some of the same questions. And so we do always make sure we've like noted some of the things that are of importance to them. I mean, just like a, a simple example is like, who is the privacy and security officer? Like, I feel like that is just a checklist question that they have. And so we just make sure we're prepared with that information and that information makes it into the diligence report. And then there's a lot of like strategic items with respect to diligence that come up as part of reps and warranty insurance. Wow. 
Now, this is great. Thank you, guys. I mean, we're here, we're talking about so many interesting things. And so far, I think what we're hearing about deal-specific trends and anecdotes, things we've seen, especially with how busy we were at the end of 2021, we're hearing that PE is expanding the type of healthcare providers that they are investing in, which is really interesting because it broadens the scope of the companies that we're diligencing. And then we're hearing that the role of RWI um, insurers are, you know, is growing and, you know, they're really, uh, they've come around to the healthcare deals and that we, you know, we're even finding that some of them are willing to cover certain billing and coding issues. So that's, these are all really interesting things. And, and a lot is changing in this market quickly. How about purchase agreements? You know, have you guys seen anything different or new in the actual governing documents for these transactions? Yeah, I can take that at the outset, uh, Bridget. You know, I think we're seeing a very pro-seller market these days, and I think that's really influencing how purchase agreements are put together. You know, in general, right, the reps and warranties in a healthcare deal are going to look relatively similar across every deal you look at, right? There's the standard set of reps and warranties for a healthcare deal. There may be some variation. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about the number of technology services providers um, that we see private equity investing in. And certainly those reps and warranties would look different than an investment in a behavioral health company or another company that provides services directly because the types of risks they would encounter would be different. But, you know, what I think we're seeing in terms of macro trends uh, is a pretty pro-seller form. So we're seeing shorter look-back periods on the reps. We're seeing more materiality qualifiers. And also, I think there's a big emphasis in this sort of pro-seller, making the doing the deal easier for the seller, a real emphasis on avoiding scheduling burden. So by that, I mean not asking the seller to sort of schedule out every possible thing um, that could have happened under a rep. So sometimes you can deal with that um, through the way that rep is drafted, the length of the look back, a materiality qualifier, so that there's no obligation on the seller to list, you know, for example, I think in years past, you might've seen, you know, you need to list every single payer agreement you have, or you need to list every agreement of a particular type. And now I think there's um, a little less emphasis on that because it is really burdensome on a seller to put together a disclosure schedule that's going to be, you know, 25 pages long versus just none, none, none on each of the schedules. That makes a lot of sense, Kate. You know, is there a standard set of healthcare reps and warranties, you know, something that we're always looking for? Yeah, I mean, I think you see the same sort of governing, the same types of core provisions in almost every deal, right? So reps about compliance with healthcare laws and having a compliance program that supports compliance with healthcare laws, reps about uh, the key licenses and permits to operate the business or the licenses of the providers who provide services through the business, obviously reps about um, exclusions from federal programs government investigations, compliance with fraud, waste, and abuse laws. Certainly then you start to think about, you know, very target-specific reps and warranties, right? So if the target that you're going to acquire bills third-party payers, some reps about their third-party payer contracts, that they've always been in compliance, not just with government program requirements, but with commercial insurance requirements, Whereas you wouldn't expect to see those same types of things in, you know, say a revenue cycle management deal. Uh, because they wouldn't hold the contract directly with the payer. Certainly, HIPAA and data privacy are big. We see, um, you know, a lot of wrangling around um, the types of reps and warranties around data privacy that we would require a target to make. 
So I would say, Bridget, you see a, sort of a core set of reps and warranties, but then they obviously need to be tailored for each deal and tailored for each different type of target. So where is most of the, of the negotiation there for these standard reps and warranties? Yeah, I think what you normally see, right, are negotiations around qualifiers. When is something going to be knowledge qualified and what is the scope and extent of that knowledge group? Materiality qualifiers of all sorts of flavors. And then, you know, I, like Lauren, right, started doing deals 10 years ago or so and have really seen an evolution in look back periods. I would say I'm seeing the shortest look back periods I've ever seen in my career right now. So that a rep that starts prior to the signature date of the agreement. So you, you know, maybe in the past you would have seen six years. I never see six years anymore. I think it's becoming much more common to see three years, two years, even 18 months, or sometimes having that look back period tied to when the current private equity sponsor or other owner of the company acquired the company so that that look back does not extend to the period before the current owner's acquisition of the company. Wow. That's really interesting, Kate. And to, hear, and to hear how it's changed over the last several years is really interesting too. You know, a piece that we often talk about in terms of purchase agreements are the indemnification provisions. Um, and so, you know, what, what's happening there? Anything new with indemnification provisions? I can take this one. This is Cassie. This is sort of tied to the conversation we just had about reps and warranties insurance. Um, and especially in the PE space, we're really not seeing a lot of indemnification. A lot of these deals are competitive bid situations and going out of the gate with any kind of indemnification um, is going to weaken your bid. So it's really interesting for us to deal with, you know, when we find something in diligence that maybe normally in, uh, in the past would have been covered by a specific indemnity, we sort of have to balance how to handle that if you know if there's if there's no appetite for indemnification uh, the buyer could potentially reduce the purchase price but that of course would also impact the competitiveness of the bid um, so it's really challenging to sort of balance those risks especially when you're you're dealing with some of these regulatory issues where it's hard to actually quantify what the risks are what the you know civil monetary penalties could be um, so that's, I think, an area where we're always trying to strike the, the right balance for our clients. Yeah, that makes sense, Cassie. And, and how about those fundamental reps? So that, that's interesting, too. You know, I think a lot of times you think of fundamental reps as being tied directly to indemnity. And so, you know, in a healthcare deal, I would still push to have the healthcare reps included as fundamentals, especially if there's, you know, a delayed closing because of you know, regulatory filings, which I think we'll talk about uh, in greater detail later. But, you know, it is important to get the healthcare reps in there as fundamental reps, because if something goes wrong during that interim period, you know, you, you do want to be able to have an out. You know, Bridget, one thing I wanted to circle back on after hearing Lauren's discussion about reps and warranties insurance, and just sort of thinking about the due diligence process is you know, I think one of the really critical things about the way we do diligence in a RWI world is understanding and helping a client understand that the problems we identify, you know, a, a weak compliance program or, you know, some concern about billing or coding or how they're handling HIPAA breaches, that sort of thing, you know, that that reps and warranties insurance policy 
doesn't cover ongoing conduct once you've acquired the company. So it's representations and warranties insurance, right? It's not a covenant type insurance and it doesn't cover acts that happen after you've closed the deal. So I think really the importance in diligence of identifying for a client the items they might need to have as immediate cleanup or long-term cleanup um, to avoid liability going forward that you really just can't deal with through the purchase agreement. I'd love to hear other people's thoughts on sort of how we've counseled clients um, around those types of risks, those ongoing risks that will still be there the day we close the deal. I think that's a really good point, Kate. And it sort of goes to, you know, some of the balance you try to strike when we're talking to our clients about the risk. You know, if if it's something that could be cleaned up immediately post-closing or, you know, within the first year post-closing, I think it's important for us to, you know, lay that out and give our clients, you know, both on the PE side and on the strategic side, the tools they need to, you know, really hit the ground running as soon as the deal closes to be able to mitigate that risk going forward. Thanks so much, Cassie. That's really interesting. You know, there were two other topics that um, I wanted to ask you all about while I have you here. And the first is for you, Xavier. I know that you have expertise in licensing and sort of analyzing, you know, at what level a licensure might be required or is a deal going to trigger a licensure requirement or a notification. We lovingly refer to this process as the chow, right? The change of ownership process. And so I wanted to ask you, Xavier, you know, how does the chow process really factor into the strategic planning of the overall? transaction. Um, thanks, Bridget. Well, the child process uh, factors in basically because it uh, determines timing. You know, with uh, child, so it basically has to do with uh, regulatory authorizations, typically facility licenses, but your Medicare and Medicaid enrollment, if you have a laboratory, a CLIA waiver, all of these things have uh, filing and notice requirements when you go through a transaction, when you go from one owner to another. But every acquisition is not treated the same. And what I mean by that is, for example, an asset transaction is typically going to trigger a change of ownership requirement versus a stock transaction. The level it occurs at matters as well. For example, a transaction where the stock or assets of the actual entity holding the license changes is often going to trigger a change of ownership. When you have a transaction where you have several holding companies in between the licensee and the ultimate parent that's being sold, that's less likely to trigger a change of ownership transaction. One thing we often think about, and sometimes we do this with clients thinking like in advance, is how do you structure your company so that you can have a seamless uh, filing and notice process? You know, for example, if you're planning on selling, um, you know, some facilities or one group of facilities to one buyer, another group of facilities to another buyer, you may want to consider doing a reorganization so you don't have them all, you know, included in the same entity. Um, not having all your licenses held uh, directly by the entity being sold is also another way to like ensure you don't trigger a very long. Um, basically a long filing and notice period. So when you think about a uh, transaction and planning it out, the timing's completely based on the chow process. And oftentimes you can make decisions even before the transaction to you know, potentially avoid um, certain filings or to make certain filings a lot shorter. That's really helpful. Yeah, that, you always get that question. Can we sign and close? How long do we need for closing? And Xavier, that's where your analysis becomes key. So, Cassie, for our last piece here, would you talk to us a little bit about um, the corporate practice of medicine and its related issues that you're seeing? 
Sure. Um, I'm happy to speak a little bit about corporate practice issues and specifically about how deals are structured to uh, take into account affiliated medical practices and affiliated uh, you know, professional entities that are owned by either physicians or other licensed providers because they need to be for compliance with the corporate practice of medicine. You know, oftentimes the target in a lot of our deals is serving as the manager for a number of affiliated practices. So while they have some control over certain aspects of the practice, they don't have you know, actual control. The practices are not subsidiaries. Uh, so you need to be really careful when drafting the purchase agreements to make sure that those affiliated practices are brought in, that uh, the appropriate reps and warranties apply to the affiliated practices um, and what have you. And one area where we're seeing a lot of sort of activity and I think some changes going on is in the context of deal financing, um, because lenders rightfully want to make sure that you know the, the target borrower has the appropriate control over the affiliated practices, um, especially in light of you know recent litigation that has sort of called into question these so-called friendly PC models, state you know legislation. There are just a lot of changes going on, so when it comes to financing the deal, these are often issues that we're seeing come up a lot. Wow. That's really interesting too. I feel like we've, we've talked about so much and we've, we've sort of skimmed the surface on so many topics today. Um, I really appreciate everybody's time. Thank you all so much for joining me today. I enjoyed our discussion on the health regulatory trends that you all are seeing in our recent transactions, the insights that you shared, and I'm sure our listeners did as well. So listeners, if you have any questions for our guests today, please email us at healthlawdiagnosed at mints.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back here in a few weeks to discuss the role of health regulatory diligence and how to prepare for a sell-side transaction. I'm Bridget Keller, and this was Health Law Diagnosed. Oh, 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 oh,